So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at ButcherBox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Do you want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on. Of course you do. The average podcast listener has six shows in rotation, so you're most likely not just listening to Conspirituality. And that's totally okay. I'd love to share a podcast to add to your list. The Jordan Harbinger Show is a top-shelf podcast named Best of Apple in 2018. So don't just ignore my suggestion to listen to this one like you probably do with your other friends who tell you to listen to podcasts. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes to scientists, political activists, mobsters, even hostage negotiators. And Harbinger has an undeniable talent for getting his guests to share never-before-heard stories and thought-provoking insights. Without fail, he pulls out tactical bits of wisdom in each episode, all with the noble cause to make you more informed, a critical thinker, and to better operate in today's world. I was on his show. In preparation, I listened to a bunch of episodes. He's just really good at what he does. Like episode 880 features Ian Bremmer, you know, the top-notch political scientist. And the topic is dealing with the world in disarray. But then you have episodes like his skeptical Sunday format. Episode 882 looked at homeopathy. But he has other episodes on Ayurveda and also the popular pseudoscience of analyzing body language. There isn't a better podcast to listen to casually or seriously to expand your worldview. He's also got a strangely relatable weekly segment called Feedback Friday, where Jordan covers advice on everything from escaping a cult or a psycho family situation to relationships and networking and even to asking for a raise. So point blank, Jordan Harbinger is smart, funny, he's easy to listen to. You'll be pressed to find an episode without excellent conversation, a few laughs, and even actionable advice that you can directly use to improve your life. You can't go wrong with adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a fan of workplace comedies like The Office or satire like The Onion, then I have a podcast that I know you'll love. It's called Mega. 
Mega is an improvised satire from the staff of a fictional mega church. That's the premise. Each week, the hosts, Holly Laurent and Greg Hess, are joined by guests, since people like Cecily Strong or Jen Hatmaker, to portray characters inside the colorful world of Twin Hills Community Church, which they describe as a mega church with a tiny family feel. The result is a sharp-witted and hilarious look into the world of commercialized religion using humor to cope with the frightening amount of power that church and religion have. So I very much recommend you checking out Mega's episodes, like the one with Saturday Night Live Cecily Strong, playing Cece String, a hilarious character who's fresh out of jail, uh, and also comedian Jason Mantzoukas, you may find yourself dying of laughter and perhaps inspired to take an improv class yourself. Mega is able to keep you laughing as you think and reflect about the world we live in. You can find Mega on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everybody. I'm Matthew Remsky. I'm Julian Walker. And we're here with a reporting and editorial-style conspirituality brief called Tate Crime. Content note, we'll be talking about sexual violence and trafficking in this episode. Remember, you can catch us on Apple Podcasts, subscription service, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon, and you could pre-order our book through the link at the bottom of the show notes for this episode. The picture of Andrew Tate's behavior and history is becoming clear. These are his own words from the webpage for his The PhD Program, which stands for Pimping Hose Degree. I've been running a webcam studio for nearly a decade. I've had over 75 girls work for me, and my business model is different than 99% of webcam studio owners. Over 50% of my employees were actually my girlfriend at the time, and of all my girlfriends, none were in the adult entertainment industry before they met me. My job was to get women to fall in love with me. Literally, that was my job. My job was to meet a girl, go on a few dates, sleep with her, test if she's quality, get her to fall in love with me to where she'd do anything I'd say, and then get her on a webcam so we could become rich together. Whether you agree or disagree with what I did with their loyalty, submission, and love for me doesn't matter. You cannot reject the results, and the results are simple. My girlfriends would do more for me than 99% of men's wives would do for them. So, women are girls, and he gets them into sex work, and that doing more for me, in his own words, included surviving his crimes. He boasts on one podcast about breaking a woman's jaw. And on another, he boasted about that time he was 21 and committed statutory rape of a 16-year-old. Tate was arrested at his Romanian compound on December 29th. He'd previously been raided in April of 2022 over allegations that a woman was being held against her will and coerced into performing sexually on a webcam. At that time, police found four female webcam performers who said that they were effectively prisoners. In 2015 in the UK, Tate had been accused by two women of rape and a third of repeated strangulation. Two of those women speak out in a recent Vice documentary. At that time, the police did not bring charges, citing the difficulty of proving rape via existing law. Tate's self-confessed crimes against women are now a Romanian judicial matter. But while that plays out, and he and his brother Tristan have just been remanded for an additional month before proceedings begin, the online Tate spectacle provides a litmus test for just how fast the cognitive dissonance of culture war chaos can plummet. 
Tate has roundhouse kicked his way into a maelstrom of algorithmic and political contingencies to become a culture war lightning rod, conducting the charges of 4chan, Gamergate, and anti-woke reactionaries. And within his rise, we find echoes of conspirituality, the belief on planet Tate that something both apocalyptic and promising is always afoot. It's a world that soothes itself with the endless rage mantras of their hero and the ministrations of his clerical thug lieutenants, including the hypnotist magician Iggy Sommelweis, who on Twitter goes by the moniker Priest Master of Wudan Monastery, apparently referring to the Chinese birthplace of Taoist martial arts. We're going to focus this report on the psychotic nature of Tate's image and meaning. We believe it might be a new category of media chaos that we can call the Tate crime, a spectacle of acute reality reversal fueled by reactionary politics, driven by a cultic network of devotees and SEO managers, where culture war punditry is funded by online pornography. Ground zero for Tate crime is the Tate follower who says that all of the corroborated and self-incriminating evidence against him is a sign that the elites in the Matrix are intent on killing his liberatory message and him. We're in Tate crime territory when day is night and night is day, when his aggression is taken as evidence of his altruism, when his misogyny is read as heartfelt support for young men and peak knowledge of what women really want. And when his every action and grandiose paranoia is delegated to unpaid TikTok spokeswomen who can instantly spin the news of his arrest. Andrew Tate is out. Um, he's saying it's all bullshit. That some girls' allegations about Matrix is not sleeping. So watch your back. We're in Tate crime territory when Candace Owens can disapprove of Tate's lifestyle to 1.3 million followers on YouTube because she's Christian, but then rain fire down on the slutty women accusing him of trafficking and unlawful confinement. Sex is a power that women have. Being beautiful is a power. Being aesthetic, being feminine is a power that women have. And women tend to wield that power heavily throughout society. And so... I want to be very clear that I do not agree with Andrew Tate's lifestyle, um, not whatsoever. Not as a Christian person do I agree with Andrew Tate's lifestyle. But you can two things can be true at once. You can disagree with Andrew Tate's lifestyle while also acknowledging that the women that involved themselves with him, right, the women that are now angry and turning their backs and saying, well, you know, I felt that I wanted, I thought I was going to be with him forever. I thought I was going to be the only one while also acknowledging that they also contributed themselves to this. They did this intentionally. They knew what they were getting into. Perhaps it was for money. Perhaps it was for fame. It likely was for a certain lifestyle that he provided. But that is what you call an exchange. So Tate brags about statutory rape and breaking a woman's jaw. Owens reduces his known behaviors to lifestyle and says that the women are benefiting through an exchange. Not exactly a great endorsement of capitalism, really or Christianity, for that matter. The Tate crime seems to be at the peak of a growing wave of near-instant reality reversals. We saw it in the idea that wearing a mask against COVID will make you sick, 
in the idea that the vaccine kills, the idea that Elon Musk is seen as the protector of the town square, or that trans people are a threat to the fabric of civilization, or that Jordan Peterson is a kind and competent psychologist, not despite the fact that he harasses fat swimsuit models on Twitter, but because he harasses them. So what has given Andrew Tate the moral and philosophical immunity he now enjoys amongst a vocal fringe of conspiracy theorists who assert he's a noble and persecuted guy? It's this. So basically, in The Matrix, there's an artificial reality, a computer-generated reality, and people are being harvested for their body heat in a real world. Their minds are being occupied by this computer-generated reality. And the basic premise of the show is that their body is being used for what is important, and they just distract their minds so that their body can stay alive long enough to give the machines what they want. And I really truly believe that's a perfect analogy for the world today. We live in a world where people are being extracted for their value, their physical value, whether you're digging holes or carrying garbage or whatever, and your mind is constantly distracted by garbage. It's distracted by TV shows and concerts and clown world. I call it clown world because it's a never-ending circus. All this garbage they distract you with, first it's COVID and then Putin cures COVID the day he invades and COVID's cured. And it's all just a big scam from head to toe. And the reason I call it the matrix is because a false reality is being projected onto humanity and they do that by controlling narratives. If they allowed people to have critical and open conversations about, let's say COVID, at the height of the pandemic, it never would have lasted three years. But the reason, because they censor and delete one entire side of the argument, then you're only left with their version of reality and they're projecting a reality. And uh, they do that with nearly every subject. There are so many subjects you can't have an open discussion on. And if they only control, if they delete all of one side and only keep one side there, then that's a, a false paradigm, it's a false reality. And that's what they're doing. And they're convincing people to act in certain ways and do certain things which are not necessarily in their best interest or necessarily true. We live in a world where I don't think the average person realizes how much they are lied to from the way money works is a lie, financial systems a lie, judicial systems a lie, medical healthcare is a lie. It's all a lie. It's all a scam. Just go to work, pay your taxes. And uh, that's why I call it the matrix. So that is his value proposition to his followers. And as he's being perp walked, he says to the cameras, I've been attacked by the matrix. From jail, he says it's all political. His fans say he's innocent, but too dangerous a truth telling maverick for the powers that be to not shut him down. The buzz in Tate world is that breaking free of the matrix is akin to a spiritual awakening. And this, of course, raises a massive irony. The Matrix film trilogy was written and directed by the Wachowski sisters, who are transgender. Part of the symbolism in their movies was about escaping the exact illusion or matrix of rigid gender essentialism that Tate reinforces in just about every piece of content he produces. This distortion, common among conspiritualists and QAnon proponents, allows Tate to foster the idea that he's the hero of the real world, far removed from the illusions of sense and order fostered by laws, governments, and the media. But we can't ignore Tate's not entirely wrong indictment of extractive capitalism. If we're wondering why he appeals to young men, we have to own that his diagnosis is not off base, even if his cures are cruel and illegal. He's not original, He's not saying anything here that's different than what Tyler Durden says in Fight Club. 
And plagiarized or not, this is the material that places Tate at the black-pilled end of a decades-long tradition of male charismatic figures who bemoan the humiliating effects of predatory capitalism and nihilistic warmongering, but whose material and charismatic blessings can easily drift over into right-wing propaganda. Robert Evans' first of three Behind the Bastards episodes on Andrew Tate situates the origin of his critique of capitalism's stultifying effect on men in the mythopoetic movement of Robert Bly, which pushed back against post-war Don Draper-style male conformity. This is an interesting deep cut, but Tate is in his own media stratosphere, in which he's nowhere close to even wanting to make sense or expressing anything beyond aggression and resentment. If the roots of Tate's legitimate grievances reach back into the forests of Iron John, they've also been brined by the misogyny of the men's rights movement, Gamergate, and MGTOW, or men going their own way, and the manosphere dominance hierarchies of alphas, betas, sigmas, and incels. Now, Tate's most direct inspo comes from the pickup artist scene of the early internet, where influencers mashed dodgy evolutionary psychology concepts about sexual dynamics with neurolinguistic programming techniques of subconscious control. They deployed online marketing to scam even more fragile and insecure men into paying them to learn how to be charming but heartless players. The movement peaked with a 2005 book called The Game that sold 2.5 million copies and led to a 16-episode 2007 VH1 reality show called The Pickup Artist. The incel movement is related but distinct, having formed as a backlash against the failed promises of the game and resentment over money and hope poured into its grifters' programs. As one researcher notes, quote, the incel movement grew directly out of the pickup artist fad, a storm cloud of disillusioned students who were ready to try more violent means of accessing female bodies, unquote. Andrew Tate and his brother Tristan established a membership website that went a giant leap beyond the game, teaching the lover boy method to seduce and manipulate women into becoming webcam performers who submissively funnel sex and money back to them after they've had their spirits broken by the noble archetype of a self-actualized pimp. By August 2022, their website had amassed over 100,000 subscribers, each paying $49.99 a month. Uh, That adds up to $59 million for the year. That money is separate from whatever premium online courses they're offering, as well as their own webcam sweatshops and what they're generating. So from Bly to Tate, we have a progression from men's encounter group poetry to neuro-linguistic programming and brutal evo-psych deployed online, not to regain dignity, but to control underlings. Tate is really to the men's movement what Woodstock 99 was to Woodstock 69. Only now it's 2023, and it's not Limp Biscuit inciting arson at a music festival. It's an online rage machine that fantasizes about burning the world down. And it has reached into the brains of very young boys. Mainstream sources are mostly appalled by Tate and wondering how on earth such an obvious sociopathic misogynist criminal rose to such heights of influence. But a lot of them sound like they're contemplating the German polity of 1934 and wondering how the cranks of the National Socialist Party came to power through legal and democratic means. The truth is that Tate did exactly what capitalism encouraged and allowed him to do, period. 
He pushed an envelope that never seems to tear. But coming back to the notion of Tate crime, some of the most melted responses to Tate's arrest have brought us back to a moment of peak conspirituality. August of 2020, Galactic Federation alien channeler Lori Ladd just asked an absurd question. Is Trump a light worker? Of course he is. Ladd and her followers agreed. The most powerful light workers, she explained, can't show all their cards. They'll appear clothed in abrasive personalities because they're tricksters, here to challenge the narrative, here to disrupt the status quo, to create a crack through which the light will come in. So, are the folks on our conspirituality beat rationalizing Andrew Tate in the same way? Do they believe, as he claims, that the Matrix is out to get him? Did he really just enrage the powers that be with his refusal to genuflect at the throne of feminist woke? Are they going full Tate crime? The answer is that the yoga and wellness conspirituality world that covered itself in shame throughout the pandemic is rationalizing Andrew Tate via their silence. Outwardly, the conspiritualist sphere is very focused on the latest wave of anti-vax propaganda, anti-trans moral panicry, and cheering on Elon Musk. They seem to know that however anti-woke, conspiratorial, and contrarian Tate is, he's too far beyond the pale to not be toxic for their brand. Which begs the question of how exactly does Tate go too far if this is the demographic that embraced Trump as a personal and cultural savior? Trump trails behind him a string of rape and assault allegations, a parade of lawsuits, tax fraud, and fake business racketeering. He boasts about winning by not paying contractors and by grabbing women by the pussy. He's exploited far more people than Tate. So the deafening silence from this demographic indicates just how dependent it is on fantasies and perceptions of social power and acceptability. New Age fascists can accept a lot of things, but they do not want the dirt of the bad boy to rub off on them. They want their capitalism to stay normie. The funniest iteration of conspiritual queasiness around Andrew Tate comes to us via QAnon massage therapist Bernard Gunther, who runs Transcending the Matrix workshops with his partner, psychospiritual coach and astrologer Laura Matsu. You might predict the take here from the word transcending as opposed to Tate's escaping, which is lower vibe. So Gunter posts an article from some right-wing site called Andrew Cobra Tate, another snake in the Matrix. And his comment is, I've had my suspicions that Tate may have been a plant all along, and this article confirms it. How and why did he really become so popular so fast? It certainly wasn't organic. His father has an interesting background, being a high-ranking military intelligence asset. Gunther is correct that Tate's fame only exploded over the last six or seven months. Vice News has tracked this to his affiliate marketing program he's been utilizing, in which his followers, some as young as 11 years old, are recruited to blanket the internet with posts about him in exchange for a whopping 40% of any sales of his online courses or website memberships that result from their affiliate links. And all of this machinery is rolling even after he was deplatformed from major social sites in August, and even now, as he sits in jail. Friend of the podcast, Imran Ahmed, said that his organization, the CCDH, or Center for Countering Digital Hate, found 4,621 bots 
retweeting Tate materials with activity spiking right after his arrest. So there's a fearful symmetry to note here. Tate's dominion of women is doubled by his domination of the internet. It's like some new form of colonialism in which virtual space can and must be claimed and exploited as if it were the abstract, feminine nature of the 16th century flowing with limitless resources. Only now, it's not lumber and gold, coffee and sugarcane. The commodities for extraction and attention are primal desire and endless stores of male resentment. And here, those stores are overflowing as Tate supporters swarm through the streets of Athens after his arrest, shouting, Free Top G, which is Tate's nickname coined by his father to indicate a man who can dominate everyone in all the areas of life. Let's repeat something. Some of Tate's most loyal fans are as young as 11. Here's where we get to the Tate crime that simmers offline, how he managed to bring the culture war to tweens. You guys know who Andrew Tate is? Yeah. yeah. Do you yeah. like him? Yeah. Tell me what do you like about Andrew Tate? I like he's motivating all the young men in the world to like help them with their life and stuff. What do you want to tell Andrew Tate? Imagine he's in front of you right now. I'll tell him to like keep going and to never stop, like teaching men to be strong and rich. For me, basically also the same thing. I want to thank him for everything he's done to help people. So these boys in this TikTok are 11 or 12 years old, and they've pulled up on their trick scooters to chat with a Tate Stan who's pulled up in his car in a parking lot. It all seems a little bit weird, but also quite normal. It's like they're talking about school or soccer or video games. So what are their teachers saying? Here's a sixth grade teacher talking about the impacts of Andrew Tate in her classroom. So I'm a teacher and I teach sixth grade. Um, we've been in school for three days now, and within these three days, the amount of young 11-year-old boys that have told me that they love Andrew Tate is ridiculous. This man is really affecting the minds of young men. I had a boy today, 11, turn to a girl and tell her that she's fat, women need to be thin, she sits at home and she eats all day and that she's like every other girl in the world and that she uses men to get money and at least he's a hard-working man and he works for his money they're 11 okay you need to be aware of what your kids are watching because this is ridiculous and it's really affecting kids young kids it's disgusting. In one very possible universe, Julian, this could be my son talking to your daughter in a few years' time. So what's our deal? What do we want to give them both instead? The short answer is some kind of compass for identifying grift, pseudo-education, and how moral outrage porn, as named by Friends of the Pod, Teen Wynn and Becca Williams, is no substitute for politics. As we were preparing the story, a parallel drama unfolded in mainstream right-wing digital media, which seems more respectable than Tate World, but is cut from the same cloth. Shitposting YouTuber Steven Crowder launched a war with Ben Shapiro and his Daily Wire outfit, which employs Candace Owens, Matt Walsh, and Jordan Peterson. 
Crowder felt insulted by an offer of only $50 million to join their team. And he ended his rant in that video by announcing he was starting his own platform. We also found out this week that Fox News's senior anchors have now acknowledged under oath that they never believed Trump's big lie about election fraud, but they repeated it because it was good for ratings. QED, culture war stances are driven more by greed than moral commitments. And this is the Tate crime alt-media landscape, where there's only one rule. Contempt for facts, evidence, and human decency is always more popular than the boring mainstream story. And it makes bank. Tate crime bosses use the digital marketing machinery already in place from personal growth gurus like Ramit Sethi of I Will Teach You To Be Rich and Marie Forleo of B-School. These influencers run huge, lucrative, evergreen video courses that teach you how to sell video courses. Tate's business model closely followed the arc of social media content, driving email list growth and membership site subscriptions, leading then to big upsells for in-person events and what coaches call elite mastermind groups with mentoring from the charismatic leader themselves. Anti-vax conspiritualists follow the same model. Andrew Tate's greed merged this model with the even more lucrative space of webcam exploitation, and then he spiced it up with the nonstop manic energy of first-person shooter games. And then he, too, presumed to create educational platforms, the Pimping Hose Degree platform, later renamed The Real World, which then intersected with his in-person training event, The War Room, in the Carpathian Mountains of Romania. The Daily Wire is following the same pathway. Their subscription revenue and Facebook dominance positions them to offer premium online courses in which one day soon, perhaps Jordan Peterson could Bible coach participants on conservative marriage and the protection of kids from woke gay Marxism. Soon to follow, there could be big ticket live retreats that train a new generation of reactionary activists, perhaps those 11-year-old boys. In the Tate crime landscape, the revolutionary wants society to regress. The edgy little guy has a billionaire pastor standing behind him. The radical freethinkers are really pseudo-skeptic demagogues, hoovering up ad revenue and kickbacks from quack medicine peddlers. Tate LARPs as Neo, but is really a bald and tattooed Agent Smith locking women into rooms where their souls are sucked into computer screens to initiate young boys and men into a relational prison that can never offer love, intimacy, friendship, empathetic parenting, or, for that matter, the dignity of honest work. While alt media competes with democracy and the very notion of education, it's up to us to push back. The world we want for our kids is only possible if they are nurtured, not just with media literacy, maybe by lobbying for high school curriculum upgrades locally and nationally, but also the emotional intelligence that can distinguish confidence from sociopathy and the kind of bittersweet illumination that sees the wreckage clearly and still feels compelled to create safety and belonging in the human family. Thank you for listening, everyone. We'll see you here in your podcast feed or on social or on Patreon. Patreon.